Welcome to the first episode of Spectacular Radio. I am your host, Zag Joyner, and I am joined with my co-host, Mr. Greg XB. Hi. And uh, in this episode, we actually have an interview with Mr. Greg Wiseman and Miss Jennifer L. Anderson. And that's going to be the main part of this episode, but I want to introduce our panel for the other half of, of the show, because it's going to have uh, one show with Mr. Greg Wiseman and and Miss Jennifer, and another episode with the myself, Greg, and Mr. Jesse J. Garrett. Hey, folks. And Mr. Gerard Delatour, the second. Hello. So that's the panel, but we wanted to kind of give you guys a brief introduction before we get on with the main episode. So without further ado, enjoy this episode of Spectacular Radio. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead. Try. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Spectacular Radio, a podcast dedicated to the spectacular Spider-Man animated series. I am Zach Joyner, the webmaster of Spidey-Dude.com, and I am joined by our co-host, Mr. Greg XB. Greg? Hey, happy to be doing this, finally. And joining us also will be Jennifer L. Anderson, the post-production assistant for Season 1 and the production assistant and talent coordinator for Season 2. Hello, how are you doing? And the supervising producer and story editor of the series, as well as supervising producer of Young Justice and the creator of the late, great Gargoyles, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, glad to be here. And we're glad to have you. And um, yes. we launched a show at the same time some news about this show came down for the first time in years. It's finally coming out in Blu-ray. Yeah, that's what I hear. Very oh. cool. I may actually have to get a Blu-ray player now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the first time that all the second season's been collected in one single format. Is that correct, Greg? I think that's true. I'm uh, honestly not sure. It's been so long. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't remember. Out, yeah, it came out in the single releases, and I know season one got a complete release, but um, yeah, this is the first time together. Yeah, uh, so congratulations on getting that, Greg. I mean, I I know there's been a lot of fans that have that are excited to have the Blu-ray set. So. I'm one of them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm me too. <laughs> so, well, it's unanimous. <laughs> yeah, so. we're all a bunch of biased people, but I think this is going to do well, and thank you, Amazing Spider-Man 2, for creating a reason for Sony to want to cash in. <laughs> right. Well, I'm excited that it's act, it's it's on Saturday mornings with the Vortex on CW. That's yeah, been that was, for that's me. been great. Uh, you know, I I tried to do some live tweeting. Well, not live because I DVR'd the show and I'm watching it late at night. But but I'm alive, <laughs> and uh, I was uh, you know watching each episode as it, as they came out on Saturdays and. Um, uh, like I said, I'm actually getting up early in the morning, but, uh, cause that's just not me, but I'm, <laughs> uh, happy to tweet about it at three in the morning. Um, I'm sure everyone saw those tweets. Uh, <laughs> cause, well, where can they follow you at, Greg? 
Oh, I, well, I'm at, at Greg underscore Weissman on Twitter. Or you can also uh, ask me questions at uh, askgregweissman.com. That's A-S-K-G-R-E-G-W-E-I-S-M-A-N.com. So they can go to either place. Uh, you know, I, I don't answer a ton of questions on Twitter just because, you know, first off, I don't give out spoilers ever. And second off, uh, <laughs> most other questions take more than 140 characters to answer. So Twitter's not a good format for that, but we can communicate. I'm happy. I, you know, I love talking to the fans and that's one way to do that. And then, you know, if you've got an actual question that isn't a spoiler that you'd like, you know, a more in-depth answer on the best place to do that is at askgregweissman.com. Well, and I've been doing that for about, I don't know, 15, 16 years or something like that. Since 1997. I remember when it opened. <laughs> yeah. Um, now you've, I mean, you've had several, I mean, we've obviously mentioned it with Young Justice and, and Gargoyles. And I mean, Greg, how did you get the gig on Spectacular Spider-Man? Uh, well, I had a couple job interviews for it, uh, and more than a couple. Um, I had one job interview for it, uh, in, I want to say, uh, I've totally lost track of the year, but it was definitely in January before I actually got the gig. Um, and that was with uh, a couple of executives at uh, Sony. And then I had a second interview right after that with their bosses. And then about 10, 11 months passed. And by that time, you kind of feel like you didn't get the gig. Um, and in fact, they sort of went, uh, or at least were talking with other people. And so I'm not sure I was their first choice. <laughs> but um, I, uh, you know... I went to a Christmas party that year, you know, like I said, I, I'm forgetting which year, but uh, I went to a Christmas party. Was this 07? I'm trying to think if it was 6 or 7. Um, okay. What year did the show premiere? Oh, I think eight. it was 2008. Okay. Was it fall of 08? Then, yeah, oh, it was probably... March of yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was March of 08? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then we were probably started working on a in uh, December of 06. And we worked on it for a year before it came out. Um, uh, why they held it to March, I have no memory whatsoever. This is going to be an interesting <laughs> discussion given the, my complete uh, Swiss cheese memory. But um, what I do remember is, I, this is probably 06 that we're talking about, that you know, uh, I was at a Christmas party in, um, I'm guessing, December of 2006, um, that a friend of mine was throwing and someone else at the party congratulated me on getting the Spider-Man gig. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And I'm like, no, I think you're confused. Um, I uh, interviewed for that gig like back in January, February. Um, you know, I didn't get it. And they're like, no, no, I heard you got it. And I thought, well, that's weird. So I, this was on a Saturday night, so there's nothing I could do about it. So on Monday, I called my agent and he didn't know anything about it. Um, then he called around, and then all of a sudden, um, someone from Marvel was calling me and saying, hey, can you come in on, uh, this was on a Monday, they were like, um, can you come in tomorrow and meet with us about Spider-Man? I'm like, sure. And then about 10 minutes later, a couple, uh, uh, someone from Sony called and said, 
hey, we really want to meet with you about Spider-Man. I'm like, great, I just got this call from Marvel. I'm meeting with them tomorrow about it. And they're like, um, yeah, we'll be at that meeting, but we want to meet with you first, which maybe set the tone for the Sony-Marvel relationship right off the top. <laughs> wow, and, uh, yeah. Um, so they brought me in that day. They're like, can you come over now? And I really didn't want to because I hadn't shaved that day. You know, I, was, I looked pretty slubby, and I try to, you know, at least clean up a little for a job interview, you know, but... They were like, I'm like, okay, if this is what you need. I mean, obviously, I didn't want to miss out on the chance. So I went in and I met with Sony and, uh, in particular, Michael Vogel, um, who was my boss on the show and who's a terrific guy. He's at the hub now, or rather at, uh, Hasbro Studios. Um, but back then he was at Sony and, um, Michael and I pretty much hit it off instantaneously. And then the next day we all went over and met with, Craig Kyle and um, Josh Fine over at Marvel, and that meeting went well too. And then, and so you know, suddenly it's December, and I have the job. Um, and I was leaving just a few days later on a family vacation. We were going down to Arizona with my in-laws, and um, so I brought all my you know essential, you know, the big black and white phone book. Uh, Spider-Man, yes. like the first four or five volumes of that brought down with me. Now, of course, I've read all this stuff already years ago, but I wanted to refresh my mind, so I just read through these stories. I took tons and tons of notes, um, and I blocked out basic arc of the first season uh, on this vacation. Um, wow. Came back, pitched it to everybody. We made a few changes. Um, I had originally put Craven in season one, um, and uh, Marvel preferred that we hold off on Craven until season two. And uh, I think, uh, oh, and I also had Kingpin in there. Um, and I had uh, one uh, episode with Johnny Storm as a guest star. Um, oh, wow. And uh, originally everyone was cool with both those choices. And then, again, things got political um, uh, between Sony and Marvel. It wasn't just Marvel's fault or just Sony's fault, but it was, um, you know, they couldn't agree on things. And so they told us we couldn't use either Kingpin, although he was created for Spider-Man, is currently part of the Daredevil license. Thank you, Frank Miller. And we couldn't use uh, Johnny Storm because he was part of the Fantastic Four license. Basically told we could only use things that were part of the Spider-Man license. And of course, Spider-Man's corner of the Marvel Universe is huge. So that wasn't a huge problem for us. It was a tiny bit of a bummer because I would have liked to have, you know, done the occasional guest star, um, and I certainly would have liked to have used Kingpin. Um, but, you know, uh, I never wanted the show to be Marvel team-up. Um, that was right. not our marching orders, and so we weren't going to do, like, tons of guest stars ever. It was just going to be, like, maybe one a season kind of thing. And, um, and so pulling out Johnny wasn't a huge problem. Um, and really Flash serves a lot of the same purpose that Johnny would have as in yeah. Flash. Um, yeah. Good old Eugene. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and we wouldn't have gotten our great tombstone if I had been given Kingpin. So it's hard to regret even that because it wound up really paying off for us what we did with the big man with tombstone with El Pronto all choices that came out of the fact that we didn't have tombstone, uh, we didn't have Kingpin to work with. Now, even right. then, I kept asking for Kingpin because I thought it'd be very interesting to 
you know, in future seasons to play Kingpin and our Tombstone off against each other. And if I'd ever been given the option, I would have put Kingpin in the show even after we used Tombstone. But, uh, um, you know, the answer never was yes for us. And so we wound up, uh, you know, going with Silvermane and um, Green Goblin and Doc Hawk and, and uh, Kingpin as our, I'm in Tombstone, <laughs> as our big bads and our sort of gangster characters. And we had a good time with it. But that's how it all sort of began. Yeah, it was go. great. And Jen, a question for you. Um, how did you get the gig? You your story here is interesting. You kind of went from fangirl to pro. <laughs> See, I used to like this show called Gargoyles a long time ago. And I used <laughs> to try to help plan this convention that we had around Gargoyles. And so I met this guy named Greg Weissman. Um, but Greg and I have been friends for a really long time. And uh, I was looking for work. And he said they had an opening uh, over on Spidey. And Spy- I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. So... I crossed my fingers and put in my resume, and um, I don't think Greg had anything to do with me getting hired, but they hired me, and it was probably the best job I've well, ever I had. We put in a good word for you. I mean, <laughs> did, you? Like to start with. did you? Yeah. Did you say I was yeah, my You still got the design? job on your own, but I mean, you know, if they hadn't liked you, they wouldn't have hired you because you weren't <laughs> working directly for me. But I did say, there's a good person. <laughs> <laughs> So you lied to them for me. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's not crazy at all. Here. <laughs> no, um, uh, but I've never done that kind of work before, so I just kind of, you know, uh, jumped into it the best I could. And you did well. I know to this day the voice actors from that show still love you. They do. They do love me. Well, that means you're doing something right. <laughs> I mean, if if you're beloved after the fact, I mean, that's that's pretty well a good hey, thing. Hey, they right? still get me tickets, free tickets to conventions. So I hey, I, I, I got, got them into shape. The I, they realize who's boss really easy. So nice, <laughs> nice. And and before we jump into discussing the episode itself, um, what are some of your backgrounds as Spider-Man fans? Like, do you remember the first issue you bought, or who your favorite characters were back in the day before you? started working with the character professionally. Uh, should that be me or... Both of you. Uh, well, Jen, why don't you go first? I, my grandmother was a car, uh, comic book nerd. So, uh, really? Uh, yes. She actually ha- has an issue one action comic su- Superman. So, wow. she's uh, a hardcore... She was a hardcore nerd. And uh, so I would spend the weekends at her house and every weekend she would have comic books for me. My two favorites were uh, Spider-Man and Batman. And so I cannot, for the life of me, remember the first issue I ever like came across. But Spidey was always part of my, you know, my childhood and growing up. And and uh, my grandmother totally uh, lured me to the dark side. That's so awesome. <laughs> I've never heard of a grandmother being the uh, being the, the enabler if well, you my know, gra- for the comic. Grandmother was the comics. And the superhero person, and my mom was the sci-fi person. So, well, there you go. That's that's really that's really cool. I like awesome. that. Greg, what was your uh, foray into the? My grandmother was really into opera, so that didn't help much. Um, um, I, uh, you know, I I can't remember uh, the earliest issue of Spider-Man that I think really. Um, 
registered for me. I, I can't be sure if this was the first one I saw, but I had this in one of those big, giant Marvel Treasury editions. Um, and it was the story that we actually did a version of on Spectacular, which was um, the issue where Jonah Jameson's son, John Jameson, you know, gets infected by these alien spores and gains superpowers and kind of goes nuts with them. Um, and it also just coincidentally happened to be um, the first uh, real appearance of Mary Jane Watson um, with her great entrance line, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. And uh, so that was just an amazing comic to me and really stuck with me for years and years and years. I don't literally know if that was the first issue I ever saw of Spidey, but it, it was definitely close to the first, and it was definitely the first one that really um, registered for me, and that great John Romita Sr. art was fantastic. It was years later that I went yeah. back and saw all the Ditko stuff, because I'm a pretty old guy, but I'm not quite that old. Um, but I was, reading, <laughs> you know, I wasn't reading Ditko uh, the Lee Ditko years as they came out. I, I was born, but, you know, not walking or talking, let alone purchasing stuff. So um, I really, you know, my seminal years were the, the Lee Ramita years. Um, and I have tremendous fond memories of those years. Uh, and then, you know, after the fact, went back and read all the Lee Ditko stuff. And of course, when I got there, gig um that's like i said earlier that's immediately what i did i reread all the lee ditko stuff um not all but most of the lee ramita stuff before we even started and then even as the series was um in pre-production and production and even in post um i continued to read forward um of you know and also cherry-picking stuff from more modern eras. I mean, obviously, Venom wasn't part of the League of <laughs> years, but we wanted to use Venom. And and part of what we were doing was trying to sort of start over, create something that had what we called the four Cs. We wanted it to be coherent, um, cohesive, uh, contemporary, and classic, and we had a fifth C, which was iconic, which doesn't actually start with a C, but uh, has a big C in the second letter. So, um, there you, go. you know, so we wanted this classic feel to it, um, and we, we wanted it to be very iconic, but we also needed it to be uh, contemporary. Um, so that meant cell phones, and that's the biggest thing, without a doubt, and I noticed this looking back at gargoyles, looking back at a lot of the stuff I did, um, and looking back at stuff that I've adapted more recently, like Spidey or Young Justice, the biggest change in the world is cell phones. It's not computers. We all had computers. Um, they weren't as prevalent as they are now, and they weren't as small and all this sort of stuff. The computers existed. It's cell phones that really changed the world. Um, that's what, you know, the proliferation of that, that's the main thing that's different when you go back even just, you know, less than 10 years even, uh, and you see uh, stuff. Uh, so the main thing we had to change about Spectacular Spider-Man was suddenly, you know, there's no way Peter wasn't going to have a cell phone. And how does that change his life? Um, 
but otherwise we're trying oh. to make this stuff feel very contemporary. And then the other aspect of it again was, the, you know, trying to make it cohesive, trying to make it coherent. When you're reading, you know, 50 years worth or, of Marvel comics, um, you've had a ton of artists, a ton of writers, a ton of editors on a ton of Spider-Man titles. Um, and what that means is there's a lot of great stuff. There's some stuff not so great. There's some stuff that's probably pretty awful in there. And even among all, even if you ignored the awful stuff and only looked at the great stuff, a lot of stuff that sort of contradicts each other. Or someone creates a character that's cool, but to be honest, is not that different from this other character that was already created. Um, yeah. And so one of the things we tried to do since we had the, this opportunity to sort of start with a fresh continuity try and create something cohesive and coherent um, to go with the rest of it. And that's what we tried to do. And I think you succeeded. I mean, people are still talking yeah. about the show six years later. Yeah, this month yeah. is the sixth anniversary. I, well, there you go. And, and I, I was going to dovetail on that with, uh, with the... Uh, do, do you prefer... Uh, you said, obviously, that you that Romita was a big influence on you and then you went back and read the Ditko stuff. How do you feel about about Ditko as as a creator? Cuz some people absolutely love Ditko, some people appreciate what he what he did for the mythos in terms of the creation of of the of the imagery of of Spider-Man and others it's just not their cup of tea. How do you kind of fall in any of those or somewhere in between? Uh, I I mean personally I think the Ditko stuff is phenomenal. Um you know the work that Dan and Steve did together made that character. I mean, just made that character. Mm -hmm. um, right. I, you know, I am not a scholar, um, so I don't know what Stan did versus what Steve did beyond the obvious. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. and I, you know, or how, so I, I, it's hard for me to talk about Steve as opposed to Stan and Steve or talk about Stan and um, Johnny. Um, you know, the work that, um, Stan and Steve did absolutely created the character. But I think what, um, Lee and Ramita did, um, really helped to popularize it, um, and branch it out yeah. and, and that kind of thing. And I, you know, Spider-Man isn't Spider-Man with all three, without all three of those guys. And you probably have to throw a little Kirby in there as well, is my guess. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm no scholar, but, I, I've heard enough to know that there's probably a little bit of Jack Kirby in the creation of Spider-Man as well. But, you know, fundamentally, that combo of, of Stan and Steve and then Stan and Johnny, um, to me, that's the seminal work. And, and one of the things that, you know, we tried to do is take some of the characters that didn't come in until Steve had left the book and think, well, what would they have been like um, you know, some of these Stan Johnny characters like Harry, I mean, Gwen actually did appear at the tail end of the Ditko years. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, what would those characters, if we extrapolate backwards, what would they have been like in high school? Um, we know what they were like in college, and I wanted to be faithful to that. I wanted to be faithful to who Mary Jane Watson was in college. Um, I mean, when Peter was in college, and who Harry was and who Gwen was because we didn't really meet Gwen until then. But I wanted to pull it back and, right. and, uh, and 
and say, okay, but, you know, what were they when they were less polished when they were back in high school? And we were also, I think, influenced um, by the first uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, which, uh, you know, isn't perfect, but I think is great. I mean, I really think is great and um, had a lot of great stuff in it and a lot of, I think, uh, smart ideas um, in terms of the origin of Spider-Man. You know, it was always kind of, you know, you just have to really suspend your disbelief a lot that the one guy that Pete lets go happens to be the guy who um, later comes to this one house in Forest Hills, New York, and robs it and kills Uncle Ben. Um, The way the the movie (laughs) played it, you understand how it is that Uncle Ben becomes the victim of of Peter's mistake and becomes the font of all guilt for Peter. Um, I mean, that mistake becomes the font of all guilt for Peter that drives him for the rest of his life. Um, And I think it, it required a lot less suspension of disbelief to do it the way the movie did. Um, and, uh, so we followed that lead. And so, you know, uh, my feeling was if there was a good idea from, you know, 90s Spidey comics, we'd do that. If there was a good idea from the movie, we'd do that. If there was a good idea from the 60s, we'd do that. Or any era. If there was a good idea, let's do it. And there are a lot of characters that came later that I had a particular fondness for. Uh, Shashan is a good example. Hope is a good example. Um, these are characters that weren't necessarily a big part of the, you know, early days of, uh, of Spidey, uh, but I thought were really great characters, and I wanted to try and bring them in. Um, and, you know, there were some characters from Untold Tales of Spidey and, you know, wow. uh, that we started to bring in as well. And, um, and you know, just trying to populate the world and, you know, by the end of that series, we had a huge cast. And I don't just mean the actors, but I mean a huge cast of characters. I mean, obviously, we had a huge cast of actors, and we benefited by the fact that at least some of our actors could do multiple voices. But, you know, our cast recordings toward the end of the series, you know, sometimes we'd have 17, 18 actors in to do an episode. And we'd still have four or five characters in there who we didn't give lines to because we couldn't afford to... To just toss a one-liner out to someone kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to bring this up later, but I, looking at the first episode, and I counted yesterday, I mean, you juggled a lot of characters in the pilot alone. I mean, 23 characters, that's more than you introduced in the five-part pilot of Gargoyles. And those are just the ones that... Yeah, started. I mean, that was fun. I mean, it might have been a little uh, self-indulgent, even. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> There were certain things we wanted to do. Um, one was to show the kind of crime that Spidey had been fighting um, up to this point. You know, the show begins the night before the first day of his junior year of high school, and he hasn't faced any supervillains yet. So we wanted to sort of show Spidey in action before things got really hairy in his life. And so that, you know, we're seeing a guy who's been doing this all summer, Spoiled to muggings, you know, one bank robbery he was really proud of, a couple liquor store robberies, you know, that kind of thing. And when it comes to facing that kind of crime, these guys don't stand a chance against him. He's got superpowers, and they're just guys. Uh, and so we showed that with a couple thugs doing a 
a jewelry heist, and I thought, well, I'm going to show a couple of thugs. Let me make characters out of them that will be useful to us. And we had a plan to have, you know, coming down the pike that um, Tombstone would hire Oscorp to, in essence, create supervillain distractions for Spidey. So it wouldn't hurt to have a couple guys who hated Spidey's guts, you know, um, in the works. And so we put in Flint Marco and Alex O'Hearn and um, then, you know, I wanted to, you know, we were, Vulture was our first villain, so we wanted to uh, show what was going on at Oscorp. So you have um, Norman Osborn, who winds up being the Green Goblin eventually, and um, Vulture, <laughs> and, we, and we show, you know, our pre-Dr. Octopus, Otto Octavius, um, and then, and then we... Uh, also wanted to set up the criminal element, you know, the gangster element. So we have Hammerhead and we hint at uh, the big man and we show the uh, enforcers who, uh, you know, and we have, so we, we, and then, you know, we had Eddie Brock in there. And so, you know, you wind up um, meeting, you know, the Connors at the lab. We were setting up all these different things, including the Bugle and, you know, at least, teasing all these elements of the show all in the pilot just to show how crazy Pete's life was getting and how many different pieces there were to his life. We wind up, you know, previewing like, uh, um, I don't know, like most of our, our villains for the season in that first episode. And it didn't start out that way, but at some point in the writing process, I'm like, well, I might as well put this guy in here too. So um, we did. And while such a thing could have easily turned out to be a mess, it worked out really well, and it helped make the world feel more real instead of having, say, Flint Marco or Alex O'Hearn come out of nowhere as a supervillain one day. Yeah, it, it really worked on that show to sort of preview our villains a little in advance, uh, particularly the supervillain, to sort of introduce them, let us get to know them a tiny bit before... They got their powers or their abilities or their tech or whatever it was um, so that we could uh, get to know them a little bit more, you know, know whether we wanted to hate them, know whether we wanted to sort of feel sorry for them, know whether, you know, just invest in these characters a little bit more as they grew. So that became an M.O. for the series as a whole, whether it was Molten Man or uh, Venom or, or anyone, you know, it was just sort of like, well, how can we introduce these guys uh, in advance? And we even started to do it a little bit for what would have been season three with characters like Morse Bench and Roderick Kingsley and, and the like. So, um, you know, there's even uh, a shot well, of Cletus in, somewhere in season two. Um, so, okay, One very memorable element of the show is the visual style. I mean, to this day, people love it. You still get some people who wouldn't watch the show because of it, but I can't imagine a show looking any other way, and I wouldn't want the show to look any other way. Talk about bringing in Sean Galloway. Uh, well, uh, first, uh, got to talk about bringing in my partner on the show, Vic Cook. Um, Vic and I worked together since the Gargoyles days. He'd been a storyboard artist on Gargoyles. He'd been a director on Teen Atlantis. Um, we had a project together that um, called Mecha Nation that we've been trying to sell for years and did as a comic book. Um, so Vic and I go way back, and we're good friends, but also Vic is incredibly talented. Um, 
And uh, so when they, you know, I got the job and they said to me, who do you want to work with on this? And Vic was my absolute first choice. And they went and got him, um, and, which was great. And Vic had worked on Hellboy, uh, the Hellboy movies, and he'd worked with Sean Galloway on Hellboy. So he knew Sean. I didn't know Sean at all. Um, and Vic brought in Sean um, Cheeks Galloway to audition, in essence. Um, and we had, we in essence held auditions for our design style. A bunch of different people attempted it. Um, there was, uh, as I recall, we asked for everyone to do Peter and Bidey and one of two girls, either Mary Jane or Gwen, and one villain, um, whatever villain they felt like. Um, and lots of people, uh, you know, sent us great designs, but everyone who saw what Sean was doing just felt like this is it. This is what we want. And we wanted a style that was clean and simple um, on purpose because, you know, we're a television animated series. We're not a feature film. Um, we've got animators overseas, and we want our characters to move. This has to be a Spider-Man who moves. It, you know, uh, you can't get by with shots of Spidey swinging on an endless web, but, you know, uh, <laughs> the 90s show. and uh, <laughs> we needed a character who moves, and that means we needed a character that didn't have a lot of extraneous lines. We weren't looking to emulate a comic book style, you know, a realistic comic book style with all this musculature and all this sort of um, line work that, it, that would kill our animators. But, you know, if they spend all their time drawing all these little lines and muscles on the character, then when do they have time for him to move? You know, there's only so many man hours in a day um, in Seoul, Korea, you know. So we needed something that was clean and straightforward and yet very, very iconic. And Sean really brought that. And the funny thing is, is that Sean did one extra character in his test um, that we hadn't asked for. But he just felt like it and he threw it in. He did... Jonah. And it was his Jonah that I immediately fell in love with. I mean, a lot of people did good Spideys, obviously, and a lot of people did pretty girls, you know, either Gwen or Mary Jane. Um, Sean did all that stuff, and we had a bunch of cool villains, but what I what really grabbed me, actually, was Jonah, because it was like, oh my God, that is so Jonah Jameson. That is our guy. And, you know, Vic and I were worried we'd have to fight for Sean, and we didn't. Everyone at Sony loves Sean's stuff. Everyone at Marvel loves Sean's stuff. It was pretty damn uh, unanimous. Um, and I think the proof is in the show. I, I don't think there's been many animated series ever that move the way our Spidey series moves. And I don't just mean Spider-Man, although, of course, he's the primary one. But you look at the way Rhino moves. You look at the way um, Doc Ock moves or any of our characters, Goblin, you know, our show moves with a velocity and a pace that I, I, th I think I've rarely seen in any cartoon, period. And that's possible because of the seminal design work that Sean did. And when we then moved on to, you know, design props and backgrounds and stuff, Sean's style for the characters set the tone for how we uh, had the entire series designed, including color and, and every aspect of the series came out of uh, Sean's design. And even the, even the music, to a certain extent, which was um, composed by Dynamic Music Partners, uh, Chris Carter, Michael McQuistian, and Lavia Ritmanis, you know, our 
the musicality of the show comes right out of that kind of energy, that kind of um, speed that Sean's designs allowed us to do. Um, because we wanted a show that rocked, and that's what we got. And I love those designs, and I especially love Jonas. I'm, glad, I'm actually glad you mentioned that, because Jonas always designs design always stuck out at me and he has an exclamation point on his face and I think that's awesome <laughs> not only is it coming out of his out of his mouth it's yes. on his face you know he and, speaks in all and, caps <laughs> yeah, yeah if he was typing on the internet he'd be typing in all caps it, it just because it's you know, dialogue he's always script written in all caps <laughs> no I mean you know one of the things you know, we got this brilliant performance from uh, Darren Norris, who uh, is so incredibly talented. Um, you know, we had a, a terrific cast, and I want to give a special props, obviously, to Josh Keaton, who played Peter and Spider-Man, but uh, not but, but also, uh, you know, the work that Darren did as Jonah was just so great. He could go from Jonah at his most comedic to Jonah at his most heartbreaking in a heartbeat. And he also played John Jameson, obviously, and uh, made those voices sound like father and son, but did it in such a way that you'd never confuse who was talking and just, you know, created this wonderful dynamic for him. And, and it, you know, I, the first script I had to write before I'd heard, I mean, I'd heard Darren audition, but I, before I had heard, uh, you know, really gotten to know his Jonah, and then uh, almost immediately from Jonah's next appearance, we were writing to Darren, um, because Darren was so strong. So, you know, Darren's whole, uh, you know, the whole thing about, uh, you know, I'll give you 3.2 seconds to get you know, uh, get me out of here or something like that. That was, uh, you know, an aspect of that, that, that Jonah was always, you know, setting these ridiculous, you know, literally preposterous deadlines. Um, you know, Darren just latched onto that and, and always made it sing. And so he just did phenomenal work as Jonah. Although the truth is our whole cast was just stellar. I mean, there wasn't, you know, it, it was so good and we got so much humor out of the show and yet so much pathos and, we got romance, and, and yet, without ever having to sacrifice the action or the drama of it, we're able to go from, you know, this comedic moment of, uh, you know, Vulture saying, uh, I'm what you called me, I'm the Vulture, you know, and Norman Osborn saying, I called you a buzzard, you can't even get the name right, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you get a laugh out of what's supposed to be this big sort of dramatic moment, and yet we can come right back then to the Jeopardy when he drops Norman and Spidey has to save him. And, um, so, you know, it, it's uh, our actors were so terrific. It allowed us to just do that great range of character with every character and, and be able to hit the comedy, be able to know we could hit the comedy and then turn on a heartbeat and break your heart, you know. Yeah, and a special shout out to Jamie Thomason for bringing them all together. Jamie's phenomenal. I mean, you know, obviously Jamie's directed many of the shows I've worked on, including Spider-Man, uh, the spectacular Spider-Man. I mean, uh, Young Justice, and of course Gargoyles, and you know, none of those shows would be what they are without Jamie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I have to say, one of the you mentioned about how it turns on a dime, and, and you have the action, the drama, the suspense, and everything. One thing I've noticed about about this show, and especially rewatching it, because it's, I watched it when it came out, you know, originally in its original run, and then watching it again, it every episode is so 
cram-packed full of stuff. It's a 30-minute show, but it seems so much longer because there's so much happening on in every scene in every episode. It, it, was that done on purpose because you wanted to put so much into it, or is it, or was I guess. I guess since I'm, since I'm a comic book reader, I'm so used, I've gotten especially nowadays so used to the decompressed storytelling that I guess it throws me off when I see see something that's so compact. It, was that intentional or was that just this is the flow uh, of the writing? Intentional. I mean, I I I mean, or I don't know, maybe intentional is the wrong word, but that's just my style. I mean, I write really dense stuff. You know, I, every moment matters. Screen time is so precious. You know, you want every moment to be serving ideally multiple purposes because you don't have time to just sort of waste. You want to give your show air, you want to give it room to breathe and all that stuff, and yet you want it all filled with stuff that matters. And and it's something I've done on most of the series that I've worked on. Um, And, you know, and even so, you know, things wound up getting cut. There was a plan initially to... Um, we were doing these three or four episode arcs on uh, Spectacular Spider-Man because there was a plan to cut those three or four episodes, every three or four episodes, cut them together into a movie um, to be released on DVD. And that plan kind of went south for um, political reasons, again, between Marvel and Sony, who didn't always have the best relationship, let's say. Um, and... Uh, not in terms of the actual people we were working with, but in terms of the sort of on a corporate level, there's a lot of lawsuits <laughs> between those two companies over Spider-Man. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and I am not privy at all to what was behind all that or, or why, but I knew it was happening. Um, and uh, so, you know... It, Which, uh, not to interrupt, but it's so amazing... How long it took them to get the rights to do the live-action Spider-Man and get those rights, and then they're still infighting even after all that happened. It, it, that, that that does kind of strike me as, as well, strange. Well, I, I think because it, because think, obviously you know looking at it as still pretty much an outsider, but uh, my sense of things is that you know everyone was thrilled with the first Spider-Man movie. Um, I mean, I'm talking about from a business standpoint. What's not to be thrilled, you know? I mean, it's making, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? So everyone's doing well off at Sony and Marvel are doing well off it. And it's all really great news. And then I think one thing that sort of shifted is, is actually seems unrelated, but it was the success of the Iron Man movie. And suddenly Marvel had its own studio and was doing its own characters. And I think there was, from certain corners of Marvel, corporate, some frustration that Spider-Man is, without a doubt, their marquee character. And they did not control him. And I think that created some corporate-level frustration that sometimes wound its way down through the ranks to us on occasion. So, you know, things that we were told we would be able to do, like I mentioned earlier, guest starring Johnny Storm in one episode, you know, suddenly that becomes a hostage between the two companies. Um, 
you know, a bargaining chip. And we're like, yeah, we don't really want to bargain. Let's just do it. Let's just have fun. Um, and, and it was like, no, this is something they all had to fight over. And it, it ultimately became easier just to not do it. Um, it's like I said, it's too bad, but not tragic. Um, and so, right. you know, it, it's a weird thing because it's sort of an embarrassment of riches. On the one hand, you've got, you know, all this, wonderful product and all this these great stories and, and some really pretty great movies and some great cartoons and and all these great characters but you know sometimes lawyers on both sides don't want to leave it at that um, but it's not really about the creative at all uh, so we just dance around it do the best we can and I know because of this there's a lot of deleted scenes from the show that won't see the light of day outside of occasionally being shown at conventions yeah I mean uh, first season in particular you know we had all these scenes you know we were intentionally running long on purpose animating more than there than there was time for in a 22 minute episode to air with commercials on network television um or broadcast television. And so we had these extra scenes, which was fine because that was, in essence, you know, stuff that we put into the deep movie, but then those movies didn't happen after the first one. Um, and so those scenes just literally wind up getting cut. And it's not a ton of it. You know, it's not like we had, you know, an extra 10 minutes per episode or something like that. We had, a, like, an extra two minutes per episode or less. Um, but... There are some great little moments. Um, There's a whole sort of Betty Ned subplot, really minor thing, but we had running through, um, and those things always seem to be the ones because they they involve Peter and or Spidey less, so they always seem to get trimmed. There was some stuff with the enforcers sort of helped spell out the movement of the villains and stuff like that that got cut. You know, just little pieces here and there. Nothing big, nothing crucial. Everything crucial is in the show, but little stuff that would have been nice to see um, that, you know, for the most part, no one's seen. I mean, like you said, other than, I think, you know, one Comic-Con, we showed scene. You know, we did a whole bunch of stuff for DVD extras, too. I mean, Jen, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, uh, the script coordinator on the show uh, and the writer's assistant was Randy Jant. And, and Stoney handed Randy a camcorder at the beginning of the first season and said, shoot a bunch of stuff, you know, of people working and story meetings and stuff like that. And we'll use that footage in the DVD extras, and then they didn't end up using any of it. I don't know what happened to that footage, but it must be in an archive somewhere at Stoney. Uh, I think Randy took it home. <laughs> He's in Colorado, with, <laughs> in Colorado Randy. with Randy doing special things on the internet now. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if uh, I wonder Unless if they've be already seen the extras. Unfortunately, no. People were hoping. Oh, oh. Yeah, I mean, no. Oh. The, the, the thing about the Blu-ray is that on the one hand, it was really great news that it was happening, but it was you know revealed to you know it wasn't like it came to Vic or I or Josh Keaton or anyone in advance and sort of said, hey, we're doing this Blu-ray. Do you want to do some commentary? Do you want to do... You know, none of that happened in advance. We found out about it when the fans found out about it, um, by which time, you know, they had made all their decisions about it. Now, at the end of the day, they probably didn't have the budget to do anything anyway. 
Yeah. But, you know, well, if they passed first, we might have said, well, here's some stuff that exists. You don't have to do anything, you know. Um, and and none of that happened. Um, but, you know, I'm just, like it's like you guys said at the beginning, I'm just glad it's coming out. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you're doing a commentary now. You're going to be talking about it, hopefully, each episode. So yeah. there's that. There's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for so, that. Speaking <laughs> of which, yeah, we thank you. Yeah, yeah, we we really do thank you for doing this work. With anyway, us. shifting into the episode, you develop mid. Your Midtown High is very different from most other versions of Midtown High. It's usually a public school in Queens, and you turned it into a magnet school in Midtown Manhattan, which makes which makes a lot of sense because why would Harry, who lives in Manhattan, go to a public school in Queens? How did that come about, really? <laughs> Well, it was a couple things. Um, it's still a public school. It's a magnet school. Um, we had those when I was uh, uh, my brother. I'm a little bit older, but my brother, my younger brother, um, John, went to a magnet school. Um, and, you know, the idea is that it's still a public education, but that there are certain schools that have focus. So one of the things that struck me is that the name of the high school was Midtown High. Well, Midtown's in Manhattan. Midtown's not in Queens. Um, so if it's called Midtown High, then that means it's in Manhattan. If it's in Manhattan, but we know that um, Peter lives out in Forest Hills, then it's got to be a magnet school. He can't afford a private school, so it's got to be a magnet school, a public school, that draws from all over the five boroughs. And we decided it would have very emphasize um, on, on science, on drama, and on uh, uh, political science so that, uh, you know, that would give us an excuse to have um, theater and have glory and MJB drama majors, in essence, at this school, to have Peter and Gwen uh, and Eddie be... Uh, uh, science majors and have Flash and Rand and uh, other characters be civics majors. Civics was the third one, not poli-sci. And so that meant that, you know, down the road we could have guest professors like John Devereaux doing Shakespeare or uh, Captain Stacy teaching criminology. Um, And so have science, and if we wanted to, you know, all the regular subjects that everyone takes, English, whatever, foreign language, but it allows us to focus a little bit and have these various areas um, of interest for our characters. Uh, And so then once you get that, you get, you know, MQ, you know, Midtown Manhattan, I forget if it was Manhattan Midtown or Midtown Manhattan, uh, you know, Magnet High School. And so uh, all that thing, all that just felt organic to us, but it really, it, the whole process came out of the name of the school. It was always Midtown High. And yet yeah. it was set in Queens, and there's, you know, I suppose there's a mid area of Queens, but no one thinks, you know, if you say Midtown, no one thinks Queens, you think Manhattan. So once every other decision came out of the name of the high school from the comics. And it works. I actually, though, always wondered if 
was Harry there because he couldn't maintain a grade point average in a really prestigious <laughs> private school? Because Norman's a billionaire. Um, I think the feeling is that hey. it was a really good school. Um, that even though it was public school, it was a really good school. That Norman felt that it would, you know, be to Harry's advantage to be in a school that uh, was good, but which, you know, was public. That he'd meet a more diverse group of people that he'd have to It'll be tougher character. to get by. Yeah, it built character. As you know, Norman was big on building character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or destroying character. Like depends on your point of view. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he was big on teaching these lessons, you know, so... Uh, yeah, Norman uh, and Crusher Croc are two of my great, really bad dads that I've come up with. I, you know, over time, I've begun to realize that I've got a talent for writing really horrible fathers. Um, and uh, so I've just gone with it. Um, Norman is up there for sure. Now, speaking of parents, I have to ask about, about Mrs. Osborne, because you're the uh-huh. first person to ever bring in... Mrs. Osborne. I mean, Harry's mom has never... I mean, I don't even know if she's even... I think there was one story where she made an appearance. Yeah, I mean, it was... uh, It's been very, very rare. And I think even during The Child Within by Deontayus, Greg. But um, other than those two stories, you've never seen her. So tell us a little bit about that. That was kind of a fun running deal where you'd see her. Not now, dear. And then she'd walk off off stage. Well, yeah. We was there something going with Emily Osborne in season three that once Norman left, she was going to sort of um, uh, fill that void a little more and not necessarily in a good way. But um, the main decision <laughs> about Emily was, um, again, you have to go back to Stan and Steve and, and, and frankly, not just Stan and Steve, but the early days of Marvel in general and probably comic books in general, too, if I thought about it more. But the but the deal was, Dan loved single-parent household. I mean, I don't know if he loved it. My <laughs> yeah. guess is is that it's just like, look, you know, we've got so many characters to deal with. If I give all these characters two parents, I, it's just too crowded. Um, and I totally get that. I really get that impulse to sort of say, oh, Peter's just got his Aunt May. Gwen just has her father, Captain Stacy. And those, those dyna- the dynamic between Gwen and and George Stacey, the dynamic between May and Peter Parker, those were so essential. And even the, the dynamic between Peter and George Stacey was so essential that messing it up by adding, you know, obviously there was no, you know, Ben's death is seminal, so there's no way we're going to add to Peter two parents. Um, and I didn't want to give Gwen two parents either because uh, it just didn't seem like uh, it, it would change the dynamic too much. It was too important that Gwen's only parent was this father and that that father-daughter relationship was so essential. Um, but at some point, you begin to feel like, okay, is it just getting ridiculous that literally nobody has two parents? I mean, no one? And we knew that, you know, uh, Rand Robertson had a mom and dad, but the truth was, you know, Rand was in and of himself a minor enough character, and even Robbie Robert, Joe Robbie Robertson was a minor enough character that the odds of us getting around to showing Rand's mom on an ongoing basis seemed pretty slim and in fact were. I was not opposed to it, but it just never worked out, you know. I think if we'd gotten a third season, we would have gotten to uh, 
the seniors graduating, and Rand was one of the seniors, so he would have seen his mom at least seen her. But it seemed at some point to be a little ridiculous that nobody had two parents. So we decided that, you know, Emily Osborne's usually dead by the time we meet Harry, but this is high school, and maybe she wasn't dead in high school. We didn't really meet Harry until college, and so maybe she's alive. And once we made that decision that we were going to put her in there, we decided to make her a bit more of an intriguing character, um, mysterious almost, um, make people wonder about her, um, and yeah. and even seated because I I'm still even, wondering about her. You know, <laughs> use her as a red herring. Like at some point, do we wonder? We've eliminated so many suspects. Could it be that she's Green Goblin? Which would have been this huge weird twist right. to it. Of course, we weren't doing that. But the, but I wanted people to have a moment where they thought, oh, my God, you know. Um, and, um, and again, you know, it, it's, a, it's sad, but the fact is we didn't get a third season. But I had plans for uh, Emily's role to increase in the third season with Norman out of the picture. Um, and we just didn't get to do it. Um, but, you know, I had we talked about casting Marina Sirtis as Emily Osborne, which will give you guys some idea of what direction we were heading. If you well, she's know my best history with cough, yeah, cough, Marina. Cough, guy, cough. Yeah, she's best known for playing the nicest person in the universe, but you always cast her as the most evil woman. <laughs> she's just a bit of... <laughs> yeah, she is, and I told her that when I saw her at Kineticon back in July. Greg's so. not a really good judge of character, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I can tell when someone. I mean, he is friends with Greg, so. Um, so you know, uh, I, I don't know if that would have happened. It, you know, it, it, it's easier to sort of say now. That's definitely who I had in my head to play uh, Emily. Um, whether down the road when we actually got to recording, you know, it would have depended whether she was available, whether she wanted to do it, whatever. Um, but it never, we never got to that point. But if we had had a season three, at least in theory, that's where I would have gone with Emily. I don't know if Emily appears in the first episode, though, does she? No, she doesn't. She no, appears she doesn't. in episode five, and uh, we're really looking forward to episode five for my cameo. We're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> oh, you're going to laugh when we get to episode five. <laughs> okay. Um, we don't need episode sir. five to laugh at you. Yes, <laughs> that's so, so true. Yeah, that's we, can, that's we so laugh true. at you daily. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Okay, so... um. You brought in the Enforcers, and their classic villains have been very obscure in comics since even before Ditko's run is over. I mean, they're barely in any other adaptions. I mean, I don't, I think they're in the 67 series, but they're, they're never used, so I was surprised to see them in the first episode premieres. Well, again, some of this is a reflection of what an old fart I am. I mean, you know, I, I go way back, so, you know, I remember the Enforcers, and they were in a lot of comics that I read and enjoyed as a kid. Um, and um, and, you know, I just thought they were a lot of fun. And, again, we wanted to, we didn't want supervillains to be commonplace when the series began. So, you know, what we wanted was to have, a, you know, some bad guys, some literally enforcers for the mob that, um, you know, had skills and talents, not superhuman skills, but, you know, um, you know, real abilities and weaponry that um, Spidey just had not run into over the summer uh, of fighting just a common crook kind of thing. 
And so that meant bringing in enforcers, and, and so that's what we did. Um, and, you know, when you've got three characters called the enforcers, <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of perfect. And they all have sort of great separation between the three of them, so they're not generic. It's not three generic guys. Um, and they've got, you know, personality, and, and uh, I think Vic and his storyboard artist did an amazing job because, you know, you've got no real dialogue for uh, Fancy Dan or Ox in that first episode, and yet you get a very good sense of their personalities just from the action uh, that they have. Now, Montana does the talking for all three of them, and we sort of set Montana as the leader of the three of them. And obviously, we had bigger plans for Montana down the road, which we'll get to in, down the road in these tasks. But um, at least, you know, we had fight up against some real, you know, badass guys who were still human. You know, that seemed important. Yeah, there's just one moment in the episode where Ox rolls himself up a skyscraper to tackle Spidey, and every time I watch it, I'm wondering, okay, what does Ox think thinks is going to happen right now? I mean, they're falling to their deaths down towards the street, and he's got Spidey in this bear hug. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think Ox he's, thought he was going to suicide. I mean, uh, I, I, I almost don't care how he thought he was <laughs> going to get out of this, but, you know, you have Montana in a helicopter, um, you know, you've got all this tech that they have access to. You know, maybe he was going to fire off some kind of line, or maybe Montana would, or whatever. Um, I, I don't know. And like I said, to a certain extent, I don't care. I, I think, you know, what you know is that Ox is, is badass, you know, that he's willing to leap off his building and take his chances about how it's going to play out. Um, in order to get his man. Uh, it doesn't work out the way he wanted it, clearly. Um, but uh, it's, you know, you still feel like this guy's a threat. Yeah. That's kind of what we're going for. Yeah, well, if I were a crime lord, I'd want them working for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that kind of leads into our next villain of the, of the episode with the vulture. Now, I, I grew up with the 90s show, so I had... You know the old vulture and the young vulture. I'm I'm just happy that we got, you know, and anim, and anim, in animation, old crotchety vulture because quite frankly that's how he should be. And I'm not a giant vulture fan myself, but but I I absolutely loved the vulture and I like the design. Now, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it looked like it was based off of the Marvel Knights. Vulture costume? Yeah, um, yeah, that was Marvel. Greg, you might have designed for the Vulture. He was in the black and the red. Yeah. Which I, I love that design, and I wish they would stick to it, but I mean, for whatever Vulture's reason. Vulture's a character, but, want to and not to denigrate Dicko. I love Dicko, but that's one of the more dated designs in comics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got and this the old man yeah, with they his wings. big fluffy I mean. wings anymore. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, and the crotchety and like the hook nose, the beak nose. I mean, what? Yeah. So, so Greg, thank you for 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 that. I I I I I've enjoyed, I think I enjoyed every single villain in the series. Your interpretation of them, and 
Vulture was certainly well, I, again a lot of credit goes with to the old Vulture. Um, first and foremost, for all of our villains creating um, versions of them that again were very iconic, that you know that had this classic look to them, so that you'd immediately look at the character and go, "Yeah, that's Vulture." Um, but at the same time, find a contemporary spin on it. Um, I think we started with a green Vulture, but we moved over to the red and black, um, as I recall. And then, you know, also a lot of credit needs to go to um, a voice actor. Um, help me out quick. Uh, For Robert England. Yeah, Robert England. Sorry. His name uh, is, isn't actually Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, had a mental block there for a second, but... Uh, you know, Robert um, was phenomenal as Vulture and as um, this guy, and uh, both before and after he puts on the wings. But, you know, to some extent, I was really pushing for Vulture to be the first villain because he's the first supervillain that Spidey fights in the comics back in the 60s, literally the very first supervillain he fights. Um, and, yeah, you know, right now Vulture's power doesn't seem that impressive. He can fly. Well, so many characters can fly these days that that seems like nothing. So part of it was giving him, um, you know, still making that impressive. And, and that many had to be first also because, you know, you get a little further down the road and that's not going to be all that impressive anymore um, once you meet guys like Doc Ock or Green Goblin or something like that. So we wanted to get to him first. But also we had this sort of thematic thing going in that first episode, which is that, you know, Peter's not appreciated because he's too young. You know, uh, Jonah dismisses his, him and his ideas um, because this is some teenager. Um, and likewise, uh, Vulture's dismissed because he's too old. Uh, and so we actually wanted to have this thematic, you know, connection between these two villains. I mean, between these two characters, the villain and the hero. Um, where they both are sort of outsiders because they're not, they're the wrong age, you know. Um, and they actually had more in common than they knew, of course. Um, and so that was also just a great way to sort of start things off. Um, and I, I just, you know, we had a lot of fun with the Vulture. And um, so, you know, we just kept bringing him back. Um, and I'm glad we did because he was a great character. Yeah. He's Roger Stern's favorite villain. He always thought he was a perfect nemesis of Spider-Man, age and cunning versus youth and determination. Which lines up with something you said years ago about the perfect nemesis for characters, sort of a dark reflection of them in some aspects. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm always looking for in my villains, is like, what is it about this character that, that you know, the hero... That, that makes this guy sort of like you said a dark reflection of the hero and what's the aspect of the character and, and you know Spidey has one of the best Rose Day galleries ever you know maybe Batman uh, maybe but Spidey has it's hard to think of anyone else who's got a greater Rose gallery than Spidey other than maybe Batman um and uh you know and Vulture was first really was uh, so we had to get him in mm -hmm. and one thing that got me is that you seem to have adapted Mendel Strom's role into 
Vulture here. Mendelstrom was the guy that Norman Osborn screwed over in the comics before. I mean, he had him dragged out of the uh, Oscorp and by security, and here you see Vulture being dragged out of Oscorp by security after being screwed over. Yeah, well, I mean, again, one of the things that we did on the show, again, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, if you've got 50 years of comics, you're going to have some characters that have a lot of overlapping qualities. And, um, and that's not always useful. You know, if you've got two characters that are too similar to each other, then they're just sort of diffusing each other. So one thing we did on occasion, not too often, but often enough that it drove some fans crazy, I know, was we would conflate a couple characters into one. But yeah, there are aspects of, of Strom and uh, our Vulture. Um, there are also aspects of him in Ock Ock. And, and we had plans down the road for what we were going to do with some of the other aspects of the Strom story. Um, we just didn't get to them. But we definitely felt like we wanted Oscorp to be a central factor in Spidey's universe from the beginning. So by putting um, uh, both Vulture and Doc Ock sort of there in moment one, uh, that helped. Yeah, the new movies seem to be doing that too. I, I, I meant to ask this earlier, Greg, but how much of an influence was even Ultimate Spider-Man as a as a as a comic? on this show because I, I I see some elements of it but not I mean most of it's Lee Ditko but I, I do see some of those elements of Ultimate in there too like like the Oscorp being a central hub for yeah, so well, much, I, including Doc Ock I at the time had not read a ton of Ultimate Spider-Man but I had read the first um, arc um, that was collected in the trade or at least or maybe the first couple trades um and, you know, like I said, if there was a good idea, we'd take it from Ultimate. If there was a good idea from Untold, we'd take it from there, from the 90s, from the 70s, from the 80s, from the movie. Uh, we, we were not shy about, you know, lifting from any area that seemed to work for us. And so there are aspects of, of Ultimate that are definitely in the show. Kenny Kong um, comes out of, you know, our Kenny King Kong came out of their Kenny uh, King Kong Farland uh, character who was in Ultimate. Um, we were always looking to diversify the cast as much as possible. And obviously, a comic like Ultimate that was created um, in a more modern era is going to be more diverse than a comic that um, was done in the 60s when, you know, in essence, literally every character was white uh, or Caucasian. And we were always looking for diversity, so we'd borrow from all over, you know, the map, so to speak. Um, and uh, we weren't shy about it. So, uh, but, you know, it's hard for me to remember now, this many years later, what we took from Ultimate as opposed to what we took from somewhere else, other than the obvious things like Fanning. But, um, but I'm sure there was an Ultimate influence in there. Um, I just, you know, personally as a reader, I was less familiar with Ultimate than I was the old stuff, and because I'm really, really old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're not going to get any pity. Oh dear. 
Nope. I'm not looking for pity. I'm I'm proud of my 50 years. Hey, I'm finding more gray in my beard every day. Yeah, I'm definitely the youngest guy on this show right now, so I'm just going (laughs) to crawl over here and just, you know, stay quiet. Okay, let's see. Um, Oh, one quick question I've always wondered. That little uh, tiara thing that Vulture has, is that uh, any way reflect uh, related to the same, to similar tech that Ock uses to control his uh, arms? I missed the first piece of that question. Yeah, that that little um, tiara thing that Vulture is always wearing. Is that yeah that headpiece that Vulture has? Is that similar tech to what Ock uses to control his arms? Yeah, more or less. Um, Again, we tried to create even with our tech to be a little more cohesive with it, um, so that you know, in theory, Goblin glider and his control of that glider comes out of the technology that he stole from, uh, I'm so embarrassed. What is uh, Vulture's civilian name? Thank you, Tombs. Yeah. So in essence, you know, Osborne stole stuff from Tombs, you know. Uh, we had plans for season three to reveal other things that Osborne had start- stolen, in essence. Um, and it would have explained one major thing about Spidey. I might as well say it. Uh, one of the things that the reason that Spidey, that Peter can't make a fortune off of his web fluid is because Peter thinks he's in essence, um, just repurposing an Oscorp product. Um, in other words, it's something that his father was working on that, um, that, uh, he, had access to because he's got his, you know, Richard Parker's old uh, stuff that Eddie Brock Sr. and Richard Parker uh, were working on uh, as scientists before they died in the plane crash. And so he's repurposed that, but he can't make a mint on it because Oscorp has a similar adhesive product. So he, in essence, is just repurposing that as web fluid. Um, But he thinks it's, he believes that it's just something that, Oscorp came up with just ahead of his dad. Uh, but the plan was to reveal that, uh, uh, in fact, that uh, Norman stole the stuff from Parker and Brock. So, um, that's similar to what the movies are doing right now. That's, yeah, well, and I'll, I'll say that. I That's something I've never never heard, so I, I that's really cool. I yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, that, one of the questions I've always seen Stan ask is, Peter has all these money problems, web food is so cool and has so many uses, and why doesn't he make money off that? And our answer for that was, though no one actually raised the question on our show, um, but our answer for that was uh, because Oscorp has a patent on it. And Peter is under the impression that his dad and Eddie's dad worked up this stuff, which is, you know, died before they could finish. And in the interim, Oscorp came up with something similar. He had no idea that it was stolen. He just, you know, this happens all the time. You know, people, you know, mm-hmm. two different groups are working on something and someone gets to it first, patents it, and there you go. 
So Peter used this stuff, but he yeah. can't make money off it. Um, right. And so that was just an idea we had that we were going to reveal. I don't know if it would have been season three or season four. Again, we had sort of a plan for five or six seasons um, to get Peter through high school and then uh, go to college with direct the DVD movies and none of that happened but um, that was one of the things we were going to do very cool I've got to ask is that were, were the Green Goblins quote unquote gobwebs related to this uh, yeah I mean you know it's all this sort of adhesive stuff and the idea was that the tech you know that there weren't you know, if someone's using flying tech, whether it's Vulture or Green Goblin, it's it's all coming from the same place, in this case, tombs. Um, if someone's using, you know, uh, technology that allows you c- to control sort of cybernetic body parts like Ox arms or uh, Tombs' wings, then it's all coming from something that Otto created. Um, and so that there weren't, Again, we had the advantage of being able to start from scratch so we could create a, a universe, at least Spidey's corner of it, that was more cohesive. Um, and that made it feel a little more real and less like, well, everyone's coming up with all sorts of crap technology all over the place. And we tried to do that even with the armor. You know, um, there was one attempt to create armor with Sandman. It sort of blew up in everyone's face. Um, then a different kind of armor for... Uh, um, uh, Rhino? Rhino, and then for Molten Man, the idea was, you know, to take the Sandman silica and armor, but, you know, allow, uh, Miles Warren to come up with a better method, but even that sort of backfired a bit so that, you know, he thought he was just creating a, uh, armored character when he created Molten Man, but, the teeth discharge was something they hadn't counted on. That was a side effect of an imperfect process. But in essence, the idea was that Warren was building off of Otto's research um, so that, you know, in essence, Molten Man and Sandman are sort of technological siblings, so to speak. Um, just as, you know, when we eventually made all the enforcers into supervillains, that all their is, uh, you know, oriented out of what Shocker's armor was doing. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Um, here's a question for Jen. I mean, since this is your first gig, what, what were your memories and experiences working on this first episode as post-production assistant? Um, I, I don't know. I was pretty much floundering still at this point. I mean, uh, just learning what what my jobs was when we did the edits, I would take the notes that we had to send uh, back out to the animators to fix. And, um, and so it was a, it was, there was no like set way of doing this. And I realized I was sending things to people who don't speak English very well. And so uh, that was a fun learning curve, but uh, um Mostly at that point in time, I was just trying to absorb as much as I could. Um, spent a lot of times going through all their archives and stuff and looking what they had and and uh, some sit to file stuff. I'd just peek through and find out what else was there. 
So I was just being nosy at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> it would pay off later, though. It totally did. <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, the 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 nights in in uh, in editing were like my favorite part of the job. Uh, we'd be there ridiculous hours uh, calling edits and stuff, but uh, it was watching these clips all come back and be put together and it was pretty damn cool. Nice. And, you know, lots of uh, watching Greg roll on the floor because he was tired and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I remember this... I remember this day I came for lunch and it all went out and Greg, you'll hear about to nod off any second. At at one point, Greg kept a a count on his office door of how much sleep he had or had not had. (laughs) And it was like minimal, like on a good day, it was five hours altogether. And I think he said it got depressing after a while, so he stopped doing it. Yeah. Yeah, It was better, um. So, Greg, uh, before you leave us, will you uh, tell us what you're working on right now? Uh, well, I'm one of three executive producers on Star Wars Rebels, which is a new Star Wars series set between uh, Episode 3 and Episode 4 of the big movie. Uh, we're very excited about that, and that launches in the fall. Um, and uh, I also written a couple novels. The first one called Reign of the Ghosts uh, came out this past December and is available now on Amazon or at bookstores. If you go to a bookstore and you don't have it on the shelves, you can go up to the desk and they'll order it for you. Um, and the second book in the series, uh, because it's a nine-book series, is uh, called Spirits of Ash and Foam, and that uh, book is coming out in July. So. Uh, I've got two of the first two books are already, you know, one's out, one's about to come out. And it's the story of a, uh, a 13-year-old uh, girl who lives on a Caribbean island. And she works with her parents in the tourist service industry. She, Her mom owns a bed and breakfast, and she makes beds and serves breakfast. And her dad owns a charter boat service, and she cuts bait and works the boat on the weekends. And she feels like she's trapped like that's going to be her life um just working for tourists she'll graduate high school and then that's all she'll ever do and the one person who sort of makes her feel special like there's a chance for something more is her grandfather but he passes away but before he does he gives her this armband and this armband gives her these sort of special powers and chief among them is her ability to communicate with ghosts she sees dead people and she can talk to them and they'll talk back. Um, and she begins to find out that she's got a destiny. Uh, she's got a mission and, uh, all this is, uh, intertwined with, uh, the mythology of that area, the Taino mythology of the Caribbean, uh, and other Caribbean mythologies. So if, you know, you enjoy gargoyles and you, or some of the other shows I've done, including Spider-Man, um, it's got a, you know, we did a, I did a lot of world building in these books, so there's a whole uh, cast of characters um, ranging in age from, you know, teenagers and up, uh, and uh, um, and kids and and adults and and 
dead people and live people. <laughs> and, um, so it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And obviously, you know, I'm very excited about these books and want to get the chance to write the next seven books in the series. And so, uh, uh, you know, obviously that's dependent on sales of the first two books. So I'm pimping Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam relentlessly, um, just like I just did. Hey, we appreciate you. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it sounds like a... Is a I've read the first book. It was a lot of fun. I look forward to the second. All right. Um, I look forward to you reading the second. <laughs> <laughs> right. We, and we'll post links up on on spidey-dude.com and also on our Facebook page and everything. So we'll 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 definitely help you out as much as we can there, Greg. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. I so. appreciate it. That's a wrap for this month. And Greg, we hope to have you back next month to talk about interactions. I'll be here. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Thank you, and um, everyone else listening, tune in for our fan panel with myself, Zach, Gerard Delatour, and Jesse Garrett. the name right.